0: So the way that people get their news today has, has evolved, hasn't it? I mean, the, the, the medium for the message has changed. And so in today's fast-growing world, social media often breaks the news story faster than print, faster than online news services uh, can even keep up. Printed newspapers now struggle for readership, while major news syndicates have had to adapt to online streams and to Twitter. And whatever your preferred method to stay informed, once you receive the news, you quickly become aware of a consistent reality. Though the medium for the media has changed, one thing remains constant. We all know that we live in a broken world. Today's headlines scream that to us. You intuitively know that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. And so as the lyrics go, the more things change, right? The more they stay the same. And in today's passage in Acts 14, verses 19 through 23, there's a headline we read from the first century that testifies to a broken world where persecution thrives. The headline reads in your Bible, Paul stoned at Lystra. And this historical account not only tells us what happened to Paul, but if we look closely, this passage is preaching a sermon that we need to hear. And what we'll see in this text is that persecution does not overwhelm the gospel. And that is really good news. In fact, we'll see just the opposite that the gospel overwhelms persecution. We'll see a gospel shaped church that advances despite the reality of persecution. And what we need to understand is that for the true church that preaches and provides a clear and compelling witness to the real Jesus, persecution is inevitable. We can't manage it out of our lives. It's going to come. No matter how nice we are, no matter how kind we are, our convictions for the truth at some point will result in persecution. And so how can we be sure not to be overwhelmed by the coming persecution, but like in this passage, to overwhelm persecution with the gospel. And so that's the big idea of today's passage, that a gospel-shaped life overwhelms persecution to advance the gospel. And so in order to overcome persecution and advance the gospel, we need to be shaped by that very gospel. But that begs the question you may be asking this morning, how do I know if my life has been shaped and transformed by the gospel. And this is where this passage is so helpful because the persecution that we see actually helps us to see what our lives look like in light of the gospel. It it plays a beneficial role in acting as a mirror. And so persecution will always reveal who we are. It will show us what's really important to us. When persecution enters in, those things are on full display, and we see what our ultimate hopes really are. And persecution can reveal the degree to which we've been shaped by the gospel. Now, in a passage on persecution, there's a tons of different angles and directions that you could go. Much could be said about opposition and trials and persecutions. We could talk about the, the reality of suffering. We could talk about the results that are often produced by suffering. We could talk about how there is relief coming from our suffering. We could go really philosophical this morning. We could discuss the depths of how it is that a good God uh, would allow evil and suffering. And all of those are extremely helpful sermons, and there are passages in the Bible that speak to those. And, then, and that means that we'll preach those sermons at another time. But today's passage in Acts 14 looks at how a gospel-shaped life overwhelms persecution. And in this text, we're going to use persecution as a mirror to help us see what a gospel-shaped life really looks like. And so what we'll see is that a gospel-shaped life is, uh, is consisted of this, a gospel identity, a gospel purpose, and a gospel hope. And it's this kind of life that does not wilt under, the, under persecution, but actually is able to overwhelm it. And so let's get into this text to see um, how this gospel-shaped life overwhelms persecution to advance the gospel. And so to do that, we'll first look at a gospel-shaped identity. And so before we jump into um, verse 19, let's look at verse 18 so we get a feel for the context of this passage. We don't want to forget what's happened right before. And if you remember from last week, Paul and Barnabas go to Lystra, and they come across a man who has been uh, crippled from birth. And Paul, who is filled with the Holy Spirit, is able to perform a miracle and heal this man. And when this happens, the people of Lystra believe that the gods have come down to visit them. And because of this holy visitation, they want to honor them with sacrifices. And Paul and Barnabas are outraged. They, they know they're just men like they are, and they do everything in their power to make sure that these people do not worship them. They tell them, we are men just like you. And Paul begins to preach the good news of the gospel and point them away from worshiping them to the worship of the one true God. And this verse says that even still, they can hardly keep some of the people from offering sacrifices to them. Now look with me in your Bibles at verse 19. Hear these words. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, And having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Do you feel the shift in the scene? This story has turned from adoration to condemnation. The worshipped is now the executed. All the pomp and circumstances gives way to frenzy and riots. The worshippers become henchmen. So what's going on here? You see, a few days have passed since Paul and Barnabas are mistaken for Greek gods of the Pantheon. And now Jews from Iconium, Antioch, show up with this premeditated plan to take out Paul. In fact, we learn about this premeditated plan earlier in the book of Acts. And so they've been plotting and scheming for some time now. From Iconium, they've traveled over 20 miles. From Antioch, Hear this, they've traveled over a hundred miles. You can literally measure the animosity, the hate, and the vitriol of this caravan by each mile they've traveled to take out Paul. They are fueled with rage, and they're looking for blood. They enter the city, and now they're able to incite and instigate and persuade the crowds to join them in their cause to stone Paul you need to remember that Lystra is a Roman city with Roman law. They have due process. There are civil rights. Stoning is illegal, especially for a Roman citizen like Paul. And this mob mentality rushes to a hasty conclusion with no regard for law and jurisprudence. Ethics and civil rights go out the door. All the quickly gained approval ratings that Paul and Barnabas had are gone as the Jews launch a smear campaign against them and the gospel of Jesus. How quickly the gods become imposters, how fanfare changes to death threats, and fandom turns to martyrdom. And let's not be quick. I know as 21st century people, we look at that and say, how barbaric of them. But are we any better? I mean, is this really an ancient people problem, or is this a people problem? All of us are able to get frenzied. Rob and uh, uh, mob mentality and riots frequent our headlines today, don't they? And for those who don't like to have blood on their hands, we turn to Facebook and Twitter, and have you ever read the comment section of blogs? All kinds of hate and vitriol and rioting. So now these first century Jews take matters into their own hands and they execute a death sentence on Paul with lethal intent They encompass and encircle Paul, and they begin to hurl stones, not little pebbles, but big stones. They chunk them at Paul, one after another, until he is brutally beaten and left unconscious. And then he's dragged out of the city, and as they drag him, he is scraped and torn and cut and bruised, becoming infected with all the filth of the city streets. And they put him out with the garbage so that there's no evidence, no body, no crime. And we're faced with the reality that the truth is a hard line that cuts and divides. The world hates and rejects and persecutes the truth. And then we come to verse 20. Then the Bible says this, but when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day, he went with Barnabas to Derbe. Now it says when the, the disciples came around them, don't think the original 12. These are brand new disciples that have come to faith in the recent days having heard Paul and Barnabas preach the gospel. They've only been Christians for a few days and now they've seen the man that came and preached the gospel beaten to a bloody pulp. And they go out of the city, they find Paul's body, they come around him, to minister to him, perhaps to mourn him, to maybe give him a proper burial. And to their surprise and wonder, Paul gets up. He gets up. God has preserved his life, and he gets up. This persecution has shaped Paul. Later in his ministry, we hear these words, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, yes, but we are not driven to to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Do you see the gospel-shaped identity forming in Paul? His character is being forged. He's now marked by perseverance and a fearless faith. And then, unbelievably, the Bible says that he gets up you would expect him to leave, right? That's what I would do. But he gets up and he goes back into the city to stay the night. Are you kidding me? Who does that? Who goes back to the very place where he's been stoned? I mean, what if he gets stoned again? What if the people realize that they haven't finished the job and they go to murder him? I'm sure all of these questions are floating around in his mind and pressing on him. But Paul, more importantly, knows that he needs to rest for the work that lies ahead of them in Derby. You see, they're all set to head out the next morning to preach the gospel, and he's going to need his rest if he's going to make the 60-mile journey to Derby. This is a man who's just been brutally beaten, and he's focused on the gospel work. Instead of complaining or quitting or whining, he gets up, goes back into town, to get some rest. This kind of experience forms and shapes a person, and it also forms and shapes a a community. Courage is birthed in the face of adversity, isn't it? How do you grow in courage if not in opposition? His convictions are forged in the fires of opposition. I mean, what about Paul's life has gotten better because he started to follow Jesus? I mean, if you track with his life, now that he started to follow Jesus, what has actually gotten better for him? Nothing. What material or societal gain has he made because he has now submitted all of his life to the lordship and empowerment of Jesus? Nothing. He is laying it all out on the line because he's met Jesus and he is being changed. His very identity is being shaped by the gospel and so that he is able to overwhelm persecution. And don't miss this as well, that there's a community being shaped around this persecution as well. See, God takes persecution and he uses it to shape and nurture this new community. And what's in this text is just as important as what's not in the text. You don't see the people whining or complaining or filing a a, a complaint with the Heavenly Human Resources Department. They're not wondering why they're not getting showered with financial blessings for following Christ. They're not growing cynical. They're not giving up hope. Their identity is grounded in the reality that they've been adopted by a loving father who gives good to his children. Paul knows at a core level that he is a beloved son and that God is for him. And when that fact becomes your core identity, it changes you. It creates a gospel identity. And under this gospel, a person becomes solid. They become sure They become steadfast and immovable. And so Paul and these new disciples have been shaped by a gospel identity, and it has the power to overwhelm the persecution that they face. So what about us? Let's not quickly move past this. What about our gospel identity? Often our problem, my problem, is that I tend to focus on the persecution itself instead of the God who is using that persecution to shape me, into his image you see in the midst of potential or actual persecution we come face to face with our fears and our anxieties and what happens if we don't keep our eyes on jesus is that worry and stress take over sometimes in the face of adversity we're driven to despair even depression and our fear paralyzes us we can't move we can't breathe and we start thinking that maybe we've done something wrong to get in this place, and that God is mad at us and punishing us. I mean, have you ever thought those thoughts in the dark night of the soul? Look at me. Persecution and opposition doesn't mean that God is punishing you. It doesn't mean that he's out to get you. And sometimes in the silence, we get angry with God because we don't think we deserve to go through times of persecution. Persecution we become indifferent and cynical and hardened. This is why good theology is so important to have stored up in our hearts. We have to really believe that God is good and that he is for you. He's working all things for your good. And because he has defeated death, hear me, nothing, literally nothing can actually permanently harm you. And so this run of persecution is not going to ultimately harm Paul, even if it takes his life. And it hurts. We can be honest about that. We don't have to pretend like a stoic that nothing is happening to us, that there's not actual pain. We can be honest. But it's not the result of, of a God who's out to get you. And when you really believe that, the gospel changes you. Your very being, your identity changes and you become marked by a fearless faith, a steadfast uh, persistence, eager hope, and relentless love. So how has persecution in your life revealed who you are? When you've gone through the fires and the flames, what is it showing about your bedrock identity? If you're taking notes, this is a great question to write down to reflect on throughout the week. And even better, this would be a great question to take to your gospel communities and your DNA groups to have your community weigh in with you. A gospel-shaped life overwhelms persecution to advance the gospel. Because here's the reality, you can't advance the gospel if your life is not shaped by it. So does the gospel define you and give you an identity? That's the question that we need to answer this morning But not only do we need to have a gospel-shaped identity, but we also need to have a gospel-shaped purpose. So look with me at verse 21. It says, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples. Now I want to stop right here. So they head to Derby to do what? This text tells us to preach the gospel and make disciples. The exact same work that they've just done in Lystra, they're going to Derby to do that work. Even though persecution has come, they don't tarry or turn from the work at hand. See, that's why they've left in the very first place on this journey is to go and make disciples. And this word for making disciples is the exact same one we find in Matthew 28 in the Great Commission. So what's happening here? They're living out, walking by faith, the Great Commission work to go and make disciples. And the risk of persecution that could come to them in Derby is not enough to keep them from the work at hand. They know what they're called to do, and they have a laser-focused faithfulness to go do that calling. And so they go and they returned to Lystra and Ticonium and to Antioch. And so what we see here is after the work in Derby, what do they do? They go back to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. You see, at this point in the journey, I know you probably don't have the map of the first century in your minds, but in Derby, they're just a hop, skip, and a jump away to go back to their home base. They could keep going east and be done, and nobody would fault them for that. They have done incredible work. They have planted churches in Galatia. They would come home to a glorious welcoming party. But instead of going the easy route home, they go back out west and they visit Lystra, the scene of the crime. They go back to Iconium and to Antioch where the Jews had been incited to stone them. Why would they do that? Why did they go back? They know more persecution could come their way. And despite that, they press forward. And here's what they do. They go strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. They extend their journey and go back to these churches so that they can be built up with courage and boldness. At great inconvenience and at great risk to themselves, they take the longer, harder route to purposely retrace their steps. They know that they have to follow up with these churches that they planted they have to nurture them. They know that these, these uh, new seeds that they've planted and these first sprouts of the gospel need attention. They don't take the easy road, but they go hard after uh, making sure that the gospel takes root. You see, they're like the industrious farmer who knows it's not enough to just plant seeds. The crops will never survive. You've got to watch and care for your crops to make sure that they spring up and that they reach maturity. Paul and Barnabas are not about hit-and-run ministry. They are not going to plant seeds and get the heck out of Dodge. This is a gospel purpose that overwhelms and overcomes persecution. What we see here is this. In the face of persecution, does the church hide and give up? No. She gets up and she gets to work. She goes about the work of the gospel And so, let's not quickly move past this point of application. What about us? Do we have a gospel purpose? Because the gospel not only gives you a new identity, it gives you a new purpose. It changes who we are, but it also changes what we do. Your passion, your purpose, and your mission will change in light of the gospel. Because of Jesus, all priorities change. So this is what I was talking about where these questions I've really had to do work in my own heart. If, I, if you were to do an honest evaluation of how you spend your time, your money, and your energy, what would it reveal about your ultimate purpose and mission in life? Under the threat or the or actual uh, pressure of persecution, what does it reveal about the things that you should be doing? It's important to ask these questions so that we make sure that we have a gospel purpose. And so many of us don't face frequent and harsh persecution. And so maybe it might be helpful as you frame these questions to think about the perceived potential persecution that could come your way if you did step out in faith for the gospel. And I know that's real in this culture. So as you think about these questions, write those down. Ask, do I have a gospel-shaped purpose? But not only do we need a gospel-shaped identity and purpose, we need a gospel-shaped hope. Look at these words of Scripture with me. So as they're continuing to teach and encourage the disciples, Paul gets down to the nitty-gritty truth, saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. In the course of building up these churches, they provide them with a framework for a gospel-shaped hope. I love this. This is a pastor who's willing to preach and teach the hard truths that opposition will be a normal part of their experience, that suffering and persecution are part of the journey to God's kingdom. What a loving thing it is to tell the truth, and to be honest about the pain line. This church, this, the church does not preach a gospel That once you believe in Jesus, you're going to get this epidural that makes life painless. What it does say is that the church will offer a community as a midwife to sit with you and to say, it's going to hurt, but I will be with you. At the end of our toil is a glory that far outweighs the pain. And this hope of glory gets us through the pain. It's when you have that kind of gospel-shaped hope that you can make it through the pain. And the apostles bluntly and boldly prepare believers to expect suffering along their path. But it's a path that leads to glory. And don't miss this. Paul's teaching here is not theoretical, right? It's not hypothetical. His body is probably still beaten and bruised. So as he's telling them that suffering is coming, his life is a living example. Many of these people saw him get bruised and beaten, and they needed someone to stand up in their midst who has gone the distance with persecution and say, Christ is all. He is worth it. He will sustain you just like he sustained me. So don't give up. Hold the line. Stay the course. He knows that persecution is like a weed that comes up and could easily choke out new converts, keeping them from surviving and thriving and flourishing. But he tells them that the crown of glory comes by bearing the cross. In God's economy, suffering always precedes glory. And he tells them that tr- the truth that suffering and persecution will be a part of their life until the full arrival of the kingdom of God. It's absolutely vital that this new congregation gets this truth so that they can grow and mature and become another gospel outpost for future work. He tells them that we live in a Genesis 3 kind of world and thorns and thistles are going to come up and they're going to uh, try to choke out the work of the gospel at every turn. But God, the great gardener, will cause the growth. The kingdom will come and Jesus will be exalted. You see, that's true hope. That's not some flighty, ethereal Oprah hope. That's real hope that's connected to a real Savior, Jesus Christ, who showed the way to the kingdom. His Passion Week shows that the kingdom advances in the face of trials, in the face of hardship, in the face of suffering. And look with me at this last verse. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, They committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. You see, before leaving, they establish and organize the church, despite the fact that the very act of organizing and establishing puts a big target on them, doesn't it? As they organize, as they become an official church, more persecution could come. But they know in order for them to survive, they're going to need godly leaders and elders but they know they need to have shepherds to tend to the flock. And so in light of that, they risk potential more coming persecution to appoint elders and leaders so that there will be those who are given charge to cultivate the community in the spiritual disciplines needed to grow them as uh, disciples. And all of this, from start to finish, this passage is done in the face of and in the threat of constant persecution. And before Paul leaves... He puts them in front of their hope. What does it say? It says that he committed them to the Lord. To commit someone means to put them in front of them. The church as a whole is given to the custody and care and safekeeping of God. And all of it is covered and bathed and surrounded with prayer and fasting. With such, you know the importance of the work at hand. They want to be sober and wise and vigilant and mature. And so they bathe this whole thing in prayer. And before they leave, they remind them of their gospel hope. They know they're on the road to suffering. They know that they're ultimately headed to the Lord. And they realize that he is the great prize at the end of the journey. The kingdom is great. That's where they're headed. But the kingdom is great because God is the treasure of the kingdom. Hope is not some ethereal thing. It's God himself. And this early church needed their fathers of the church to tell them that they would face persecution as a result of following Christ, but that they were headed to the city of God. So let's finish applying this text. Persecution by its very nature stirs up and draws out our fears. Even the threat of it brings up that anxiety. And these fears are used by the enemy to blind us from the trajectory that the Lord has for his children. And when we give these fears our constant attention, they will knock you off your course. But don't let that happen. The suffering and persecution are meant to actually drive you to the Lord. And so what's our tendency? Our tendency is to spend our time and energy building up walls to make sure that we never feel the effects of persecution and hardship and suffering. I'm not saying to be a wild man, to go out looking for suffering. I'm saying be wise about how you live. But what would it look like if we took all the time and energy that we normally spend inculcating ourselves and building up these walls of defense? What if we used that energy to devote ourselves to the Lord, knowing that trials and temptations and persecution are coming? You see, if you have a true gospel-centered hope, your whole risk-reward scale changes. You see, if this life is all there is, it would be completely foolish to force, to, to, to give it all up for the gospel. But if God is real and his kingdom is really coming, then the wisest, most beautiful thing you could ever do is to risk it all on the sake of the kingdom. And so it's important to ask these questions. How has persecution or the threat of persecution revealed in your life what you really believe? about your ultimate hope. What is your true hope? What do you believe your true trajectory is in life? A gospel-shaped life provides an identity, a purpose, and a hope that overwhelms persecution to advance the gospel. And so for believers here today, myself included, we need to have the courage to ask these hard questions. We need to ask, who would we be and what would we do if we really believed and applied the gospel to our everyday lives? And for some of you here today, you have yet to put your faith and trust in the good news of the gospel. And the beauty of this story is that Paul was not the first one to have the crowds turn on him. In fact, in the final week of Jesus' life, Jesus is welcomed into the city with all kinds of pomp and circumstance and singing and praise as the son of David, the long-awaited Messiah. And in just a few short days, he would suffer the betrayal of a close friend and be handed over to a mob to be crucified by the very ones he came to save. And for Jesus, to be persecuted is actually why he came. He left every comfort and refuge of heaven to become vulnerable to the point of death. And he had the courage not only to take on the pain of dying, but to take on our sin so that by his death, we could have life. And because of that, the Lord and the Lord alone is our only strong refuge. And our lives are riddled by trouble and threats and persecutions, but a gospel-shaped life finds refuge in Jesus, knowing that because he's defeated my greatest enemies of sin and death, I can now face the lesser threats of today. The gospel overwhelms persecution because it's the good news that God is a God of salvation. I love what the Scottish reformer John Knox said in the face of persecution for his faith. He said these words, my life is in the custody of him whose glory I seek. So who or what are you trusting with the custody of your life? Who is keeping watch and care for your soul? If it's not Christ, you will be overwhelmed and overcome in the ultimate suffering of death but if your life is in Christ, not only will you overwhelm death one day, but you will overwhelm persecution and suffering today. And it's in the face of suffering and persecution that God shapes his instruments of uh, of redemption. We're heated in the fire and forged against his anvil and his hammer. So does the gospel shape your identity, your purpose, and your hope? Let's pray to this end. Father, we pray that you would anchor us. You would anchor us to the only true anchor, Jesus Christ. Fix our eyes on him. And in doing so, would you give us an identity and a purpose and a hope, a gospel-shaped life that is able to overwhelm the coming persecution. Would you strengthen this church for the days ahead that we would be a beautiful and true and good witness to the glory of Jesus Christ. Hear these words and answer them, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.